Lovely to welcome you um, tonight to the National Library Fellowship Lecture by Dr. Agnieszka Sobaczynska, Senior Research Fellow at the National Centre for Australian Studies at Monash University. I'm Robin Holmes and I'm Senior Curator at the National Library with the responsibility for managing the Fellowships Program. As an historian, Agnieszka's research interests um, particularly lie in the intersection of popular opinion and foreign affairs, particularly in the context of Australia and Asia and of Western constructions of the Third World. Her first book was published in 2014, Visiting the Neighbours, Australians in Asia, and she co-edited with David Walker, Australia's Asia, from Yellow Peril to Asian Century, that's now been translated into Chinese and published in Beijing. So you're an international uh, author. Um, Agnieszka is currently working on a very large project to examine the history of foreign aid in Australia, in Britain and the United States, but from a cultural perspective. She's interested in probing how popular engagement with people, uh, people's engagement with foreign aid and international aid development has shaped public understanding, assumptions and opinion and has impacted on foreign policy and aid programs. During her fellowship here, Agnieszka has been specifically investigating Australians' volunteer graduate scheme that pioneered the model for development volunteering by secular governments in the 1950s. So it's with special um, effort and care that we welcome indeed tonight some former volunteers and some people that have done and practised international aid. And I found out, Agnieszka, that you actually met somebody tonight who's here in Cambodia volunteering yourself and you never told us that. <laughs> so I welcome you as a former volunteer as well. So that was very, very special. Uh, perhaps our oldest volunteer in the room um, is Jeff Miles and we particularly welcome you, Jeff. And um, particularly also Paul Bird, who is the CEO of Australian Volunteers International. And I think they're looking back at their own history and will find um, the beginnings of the ideology about volunteering very much evident in your talk tonight, Agnieszka. 2016 is a really exciting year for the National Libraries Fellowships Program. We currently have four fellows in residence and they're all here tonight. You can put up your hands if you like. Um, and um, we... In having four, we've got this tremendously exciting group in residence, but they're the first group to be here since, of course, the National Library was able to reinvigorate and reinstate its fellowship program with the generosity of donors and supporters. So this is the first of four fellowships talks over the next five weeks, so don't go without your next flyer for May the 10th, which is Class Neumann's, which is actually um, about... in. That multicultural backgrounds, new lives in a new country. So we certainly expect to see some of you back here. Um, Agnieszka's fellowship is supported by the National Library's Council Chair, Ryan Stokes, who really led by example when we set out to raise the funds to support the program. So Agnieszka is also the first of the Library's former Summer Scholars to receive a full National Library Fellowship a scholarship that she received 10 years ago in 2006 while undertaking her PhD at the University of Sydney. So we do feel a certain pride at the National Library in your career, but also the career of others, more than 50 PhD students that we've now given a kind of career impetus through running the Summer Scholarship Scheme. And it's a delight to welcome you back, but also to have followed your remarkable achievements within a 10-year history in academia since then. So welcome, Agnieszka, um, to share with us your findings of your fellowship research on this volunteer graduate scheme. Thank you. Thank you very much. With a welcome like that, I don't know if I can follow. Um, thank you so much for everyone who's here tonight, especially the... Um, fascinating people that I've already met and hopefully we'll meet again, um, some of whom I quote tonight, so if I get it wrong, maybe hold back, hold back until after. Um, thank you also to the National Library of Australia. It's a really wonderful institution. It's quite unique in a lot of ways um, and it has some pretty wonderful staff, some of, of whom are here tonight. Particular thanks obviously to Robin Holmes, who's just been fantastic the whole time I've been here, to Margie Byrne and Beth Mansfield, and also to the library as an institution 
and the people who really went to create these fellowships, um, who have been sort of made possible again through philanthropy. Fellowships like this are a rare privilege and an absolute pleasure, and I'm very grateful for the sort of unparalleled opportunities for research um, I've had during my time here, and I am very greedy. I've had this twice, as Robin <laughs> told you, so particular thanks. So tonight I want to tell what in some ways is a small story of individuals, but also with big consequences. On the one hand, it's a story of people working within very specific contexts, and I think that's really important, who they are, where they come from, what they think and where they go. But on the other, it's a story of the ideas that they've had, and ideas that are so exciting that they end up bursting beyond those contexts to be taken up elsewhere. And that other part of the story I want us to think about is what happens when ideas made for particular contexts try to get be placed somewhere else, the tensions um, and, so that, and problems that might arise as they're made to fit these new circumstances. This is obviously, as so many of you in the room know, a story of international connections, both physical and sentimental. Beginning in Australia, it moves on to Indonesia, to New Zealand, Burma and Canada, the United Kingdom, Ghana and Malaya, to the United States, Latin America and Southeast Asia, and that's before it actually bursts the banks and sort of explodes everywhere. So this particular story, the small story, begins in 1950 as two Melbourne University students, John Bailey and Adam Hunt, returned from a student conference in Bombay. Whilst away, they'd struck up an acquaintance with the Indonesian delegate to the conference, A.B. Lupus, and Lupus had given a really vivid account of his nation's recent revolution, its current state of development, and particularly this chronic skills shortage that followed the sudden departure of the Dutch bureaucrats, so after independence. Back in Melbourne, political scientist Herb Feith heard this story and became immediately enthralled. Feith had been born to a Jewish family in Austria who'd fled from the Nazi regime at the approach of World War II. And partly because of this, he had a really strong sense not only of social justice, but also of the fact that individuals, that ordinary people, had a duty to become involved not only in politics, but also in international affairs. He was also a doer. He was incredibly busy in all sorts of organisations and student life. And at Melbourne University, this was particularly the Labor Club, the ALP Club and the Student, Christ uh, student Christian Movement. This idea that ordinary people could have agency in international affairs was becoming increasingly widespread in the post-war years and especially amongst those people who began to look at Australia's policies in Asia with a critical eye. The White Australia policy was, of course, introduced at Federation in 1901. This was the formal expression of Australian desires to remain isolated from the Asian region. But 50 years on, many people began to think that it might no longer be the best fit. The Asian region was decolonising. It was also becoming increasingly strident in calling out colonialism and racism. With a conservative liberal government lately in power that didn't seem to be responsive to these shifts, Many ordinary people came to think that it was their responsibility to improve their nation's relations with Asia. And now, Faith saw an opportunity. He thought that young Australians could spend a couple of years working in Indonesia at Indonesian rates of pay to help plug this skills gap that he'd heard about. He gave this a name, the Volunteer Graduate Scheme, or VGS, and was put in, in touch with Molly Bondan, a Sydney cider who'd married an Indonesian revolutionary during the war, which is its own separate and fascinating story, um, but moved to Jakarta, began working at the Ministry of Information and cultivated this incredible network of uh, politically connected people. With her husband's connections, Bondan had begun to think that she could help Faith. She could help him get work himself at the Ministry of Information and also do the same for other people who wanted to come and help Indonesia's development as an independent nation. So in July 1951, Herb Faith arrived in Jakarta. He was the only one to disembark from his ship when it docked. His fellow passengers were worried by rumours they'd heard that Indonesia wasn't safe for Europeans. Feith's fare had been covered by a Melbourne University travel scholarship, but as promised, Bondan had organised him a job at the Ministry of Information and she took him under her wing. At first, Herb found Jakarta confusing, confronting and exhausting. 
You couldn't imagine any city more conspicuously lacking in any semblance of planning of the most primitive sort, he wrote to his friends soon after arrival, with buildings that looked awfully primitive and tumble down. Yet under Molly's guidance, within a few weeks, Feith was learning to see Indonesia's potential rather than its failings. Perhaps most important, as I sort of hinted, the connections that Molly and her husband Bondan had allowed Feith to um, introduce his idea, this idea of a volunteer graduate scheme, to important people. Within months, he was reflecting, quote, how terrifically lucky I am. In fact, if I wasn't in some ways regarded as a protege of Molly's, it might not nearly be so easy, but that position's just given me wonderful privileges. So while Faith worked in Jakarta and he worked quite hard at this, a small committee of Melbourne University friends continued to drum up interest in Australia. Enthusiasm for this, you know, kind of radical idea at the time was running pretty high, particularly in the student Christian movement, and we'll come back to that later. And in 1952, so a year after Faith, two more volunteers, bacteri bacteriologist Gwenda Rodder and radio engineer Ollie McMichael, arrived in Indonesia. By this time, so by 1952, the Australian government had agreed to fund VGS. Minister for External Affairs Richard Casey had at first been reluctant to sponsor the scheme. He couldn't quite see the benefit or the purpose of something like this. In 1952, however, he changed his mind following lobbying by notable groups and individuals. And again, we'll come back to that point. From this, from this moment, from 1952, the Australian government paid gov uh, volunteers first-class fares to and from Indonesia, provided them with a tropical clothing and equipment allowance, a bicycle and a resettlement grant um, after they returned. This, while sounds like small fry, made the Australian and Indonesian governments, the Indonesian government, of course, paid the salaries of the staff while they were there, the first to support a development volunteering program. So a volunteer program that was specifically talking about assisting in the economic development of a newly post-colonial country. Yet during these years, and largely due to that really interesting group, Molly Bondan, Herb Thief, VGS shifted from being this work scheme designed to fill a skills shortage to become a political statement. Even before disembarking in Jakarta, Faith had begun to think that, quote, the gesture value of these projects, meaning the motive rather than the immediate practical effect, was actually all important. Rather than the work itself, he began to think that the most important task of Australian volunteers was identification and concrete manifestation, he said, of colour equality views in a country where whites have just never done any manual work. This ideal, this ideal of identification, soon became all important. An early pamphlet noted, what they do in their actual work is important, but more important perhaps is the fact that these young people assert by the way they live that racial equality is real. By having natural and friendly relations with Indonesians on a basis of mutual respect, they help to do away with the colonial legacy of mistrust and misunderstanding, which to so large an extent continues to affect relations between coloured people and whites. This was emphasised by early volunteers themselves, who claimed that our most important job in Indonesia, more important even than what we do at work, is just to live normally and naturally in the Indonesian world and to make friends among Indonesians, showing Indonesians that there are whites who don't stand on superiority ideas and making whites ashamed of the privileges they continue to enjoy. And it's important that this is seen as sort of a racial and a colonial and post-colonial program. So the fact that volunteers would be living as Indonesians was the focus not only of the volunteers, but also the early media coverage, some of which you see here from the library's connect collections. This was emphasised because, of course, at the time, it was still unusual. Since the 19th century, Australians in Asia had preferred to associate with the colonisers rather than the colonised. Um, and in my last book, the plug of which is here, Visiting the Neighbours, Australians in Asia, I found that most travellers had a really keen sense of this sort of European prestige, what that meant and how they could sort of become a part of it, how they could maintain the illusion of superiority in Asian eyes, which to VGS was exactly the point. The white Australia policy had created a serious image problem in Asia that VGS wanted to tear down and to address. 
Whilst the original idea had come from an Indonesian suggestion and saw Indonesia benefiting from the cheap, skilled labour, before long the volunteer graduate scheme was largely focused on improving Australia's image in Asia. Now, as a result, volunteers felt a lot of pride when Australians were well-received in Indonesia. As Ollie McMichael wrote in a letter to his parents in mid-1952, they, they have bitter memories of the colonial time and they're always delighted to hear you're Australian and not Dutch or American. The fact that Indonesians were, who became familiar with VGS weren't thinking about Australia as its restrictive immigration policy anymore was really important. There was also a bit of Cold War stuff in this as well. In another letter, McMichael claimed that, quote, no country matters more to Indonesia than we do. If Australia fails, they'll turn to China. And because of this, if Indonesia fails, Australia is sunk. Now, the Australian government's support for VGS was partly based on this exact Cold War calculus, as well as the understanding that this program helped enhance Australia's image in Asia. Whereas the minister, as we'd seen, had initially been reluctant to fund the scheme, by 1955, external affairs had nothing but praise for VGS, writing that, quote, in our view, the scheme tapped a useful source of energetic, energetic talent from which we profited at a cheap rate. Writing in the August the following year, influential journalist Peter Russo also thought the benefits accrued to Australia. If there's any better way than that of showing the flag in Asia, he wrote, any surer way of dispelling Asia's lingering distrust of colonial taints, I haven't heard it. Rather than models of post-colonialism or agents for modernisation, Russo thought VGS volunteers were, quote, our leading insurance salesmen in Asia. Now, Feet's insistence and the VGS's insistence that volunteers should maintain that same standard of living as Indonesians was unusual for the Department of External Affairs, which in many ways um, still retained colonial-era notions of European prestige in Asia. When Casey approved VGS in February 1952, he did so under the assumption that the, the department would be dramatically um, su supplementing volunteers' salaries, that they'd get more money than Indonesians. The VGS refused. They thought that this would obviously sort of undercut the idea of identification. But, the VGS, uh, but then the government made a counter-offer. It started to demand that volunteers would draw at least £25 per annum from a special £5,000 installation and emergency fund to take annual holidays in comfortable European-style hotels. Again, the volunteers resisted. This is an interesting conflict, but I think there's something more going on here. And it's in that wider shift in the concept of prestige. To VGS volunteers, prestige was taking the exact opposite form to what the Department of External Affairs was still thinking and to what it was in colonial times. Importantly, it seems that the Australian Embassy and later the Department of External Affairs came to understand and share this very different sense of prestige. By 1955, the second secretary in Jakarta advised Canberra that the scheme, quote, derives something from the fact that its members receive, while they're in Indonesia, rates of pay identical with Indonesian officials of similar status. The Department of External Affairs began to agree, reporting later in the year that, quote, from a goodwill and prestige point of view, the volunteer graduate scheme is one of our most successful Colombo Plan ventures. And after this point, the Department of External Affairs became so convinced that it was using VGS in its nascent um, public diplomacy campaign in Asia. Yet alongside all these um, sort of motivations we've been hearing about, so the desire to overturn colonial norms and to improve Australia's image in Asia, lay another motivation. VGS was profoundly intertwined with religion during these years, particularly through the Australian student Christian movement. The program's very existence owed a great deal to the support of organised Christian movements, both in Australia and in Indonesia. In Australia, they formed a big part of that lobby group that I mentioned earlier, who worked on Dick Casey before he agreed to fund VGS. So the Australian Council of the World Council of Churches, for example, wrote to the minister um, to commend VGS in, quote, the warmest possible terms. And this also happened, interestingly enough, on the Indonesian side as well. 
Indonesian Christians, as well as Bondan's group of well-connected nationalists, were really important in shepherding um, VGS program through the Indonesian approvals process. So leading Indonesian Christians, such as Dr. Joseph Lehmena, who was at that time the Minister for Health, though he went on to be um, Deputy Prime Minister in the 60s, and Dr. Rum at the Ministry for Information, shepherded the program. They were really interested in seeing it um, succeed. And it was largely due to their work that VGS received unusually speedy passage through the bureaucracy. Individual volunteers were also motivated by religion. Until the late 1950s, every single VGS volunteer was also a member of the student Christian movement. It's really important, I think, that in that sense, the ideal of identification, which we've seen as a post-colonial radical departure, um, also came out of evangelical and religious considerations. The National Library and its special collections holds handwritten notes written by Feith during his earliest months in Indonesia. As far as I can tell, these were kept for himself rather than for any audience. They were scribbled after meetings, so we, after he um, had met Indonesian government ministers, expatriate missionaries or friends. Feith, um, who was at this point going through a stage where he was really closely involved with student Christian movement and Christianity, although he didn't stay like that for the rest of his life, um, had a strong desire to bring Indonesian Muslims to the Christian faith. And he also plotted in these notes how this could be done. After some months in Indonesia, he could see that traditional proselytising wouldn't work, as, quote, some say it's five years before you can talk of religion with locals. He wrote as if to remind himself, don't preach. Spreading the Christian faith was to be done through slow, subtle steps. After a few months, he began to think that the way to bring people into the Christian fold was to, quote, open your house and your heart, receive people at any time, don't stand on ceremony, accept their standards. Above all, it was very necessary to know the people by living amongst them. This, he wrote, was identification, a way of eating, sitting on floor, laughing, crying with them, be natural, friendly, speak the local language. He closes with a reminder, this is lifelong work. I think it's important that at least in this note, identification is, not, is seen as the tool for the lifelong work of Christian mission in Indonesia. So there's two ways of looking at that main sort of concept of identification. Within five months of arriving in Indonesia in 1951, Feith was writing letters to other Christian organisations. The idea, he wrote, was that people coming here would be lay missionaries. They would be full-time workers, clerical, commercial, etc., and would in their spare time do Christian work with the Christian youth organisations here. Also, they would live in hostels where they would have an opportunity to do Christian work. They would not, in fact, be classified as missionaries to be passed by the Ministry of Religious Affairs, and the fact that they would not belong to any missionary society would, it seems, give them greater popularity since the fear of the organised power of the mission still exists. So this is important because VGS as an organisation, not just through personal beliefs, had this sort of Christian connection. Now importantly, Feith was not the only volunteer to hold ideas like this, actually very far from it. Gwenda Rodder came to Jakarta in 1952 to work with the Ministry of Health, as we see here. However, in her tract, Pegawise and Christian Witness in Indonesia, it's evident that she did not see this as incompatible with evangelical motives. Intended for circulation among Christian groups, but marked not for publication, um, she wrote uh, this tract, Pegawise and Christian Witness um, in Indonesia. She writes, Christians among Pegawise, i.e. Australians coming here to work for the Indonesian government under the plan for the employment of graduates from Australia to work as Indonesians, which is a bit of a mouthful, can be used by God to further his purpose in Indonesia. She goes on. This is a missionary situation. Sorry, Only about 4% of the 77 million Indonesians are Christians and there is a great need for more Christian workers. Much like Feith, Rodder thought Christians could bear witness by their daily work, she said, and by disregarding the distinctions of rank, being friendly and polite to both the bosses and the servants equally. But where Feith believed that actually the volunteers had no right to preach, Rodder went a little bit further, so the individual motivations of these volunteers, of course, varied. She thought that there were many opportunities for evangelising. Of course you meet many people at work, she wrote, 
travelling in the same vehicle, working with them, you often get this chance to talk about God. Now, of course, religion and politics aren't mutually exclusive. Many Protestants at the time um, thought evangelical Christianity was entirely compatible with social justice and racial equality. And in Australia, the student Christian movement was actually at the forefront of quite a lot of the political campaigns um, engaging with the politics of decolonisation. But the Christian influence was very strong and quite problematic in terms of the context of Indonesia. It could be something of a liability there. As Herb Feith wrote quite early on, of course we must be careful to see that neither of the governments come to regard the scheme as something specifically Christian or Protestant. He was right to be wary. The papers of the Australian Embassy in Jakarta, which are in the National Archives here in Canberra, report that Sugarda Purbakawaja, a key figure at the Ministry of Education in Indonesia, was one of a larger group of people who was really suspicious of what the volunteers were up to. Quote, he, was, he held a strong antipathy to what he seems to regard as a missionary impulse behind the scheme and the element of patronage which it seems to him to embody. Now, the volunteers' blurring of develop, development and evangelical work complicates the VGS image and significance. In public, the organisation claimed that volunteers' eagerness to share the life of ordinary Indonesians came only from their desire to overcome racial and colonial divisions, which, of course, to a very large extent, it did. But there was another sort of more um, underlying continuity with previous forms of missionary endeavour here as well. It was a radical innovation to some extent, but VGS also represented a translation of colonial-era notions of Christian service and uplift into this colonial period. This is interesting, I think, because it does complicate things, and complicate isn't necessarily a bad thing. Gemma Purdy, Feith's biographer, and others interested in this contribution to Australian-Indonesian relations have almost entirely removed this Christian aspect um, to these early years of the VGS and reframed especially Feith's story as quite a, as a secular and sort of inspirational story of Australians working to overcome boundaries between Australia and Asia. But here, at this moment in the 1950s, we see a complex range of motivations, post-colonial and post-racial empathy, the desire to contribute to development, but also Australian nationalism, Cold War realpolitik, and even missionary aspirations coming together to create this scheme. So these were the aims, and they're complex, but what was life as a volunteer actually like? To what extent did the reality match the rhetoric, whichever rhetoric, post-colonial nationalist or Christian? 48 volunteers uh, served in Indonesia from the scheme's beginning in 1951 until it was folded into a different organisation in the mid-1960s. As this picture suggests, 17 of them, or just over a third, were women. Most were in their mid-twenties, some went into their early thirties, and about a third were either married or got married during their time in Indonesia. And they lived all around Indonesia. So whereas the early volunteers that I've spoken about were mostly Jakarta, people um, from VGS lived in, also in Bandung and Bogor in West Java, Malang in East Java, Yogyakarta, as well as what are called the Outer Islands, so everywhere else, Sumatra, Sulawesi, Kalimantan and Flores. Now, Indonesia was going through massive changes in the 1950s. So your experience as a volunteer not only varied by where you were, but also when you went. The early volunteers, so those serving before maybe 1957, 1958, had overwhelmingly positive experiences. Not only were people ready to welcome foreign idealists such as these, they were also paid fairly well. So these are volunteers, but they were getting paid at the Indonesian pay scale, which, you know, civil service pay scale is kind of equivalent to the APS. Pay was determined by level of education, however, which meant that these volunteer graduates, or university graduates, got paid pretty well. It was a fairly comfortable wage, which was part of the thinking that went into determining who did and who didn't go, their level of qualifications. Most volunteers also subsidise their official incomes by teaching English outside work hours, resulting in a fairly comfortable lifestyle. Some of you have seen this photo before, apologies. 
1952, Herb Feith wrote that it would be very difficult for me to say whether I'm living at a higher or lower standard of living than I was in Australia in a more or less middle class home. But I'm certain that I haven't felt any worse off in the things that go to make up a standard of living. A 1954 information sheet produced for intending applicants also said, quote, living conditions are those of the Indonesian middle class, which are by no means hard but call for some adjustment. Indonesian food consisting basically of rice is strange at first. However, female participants have been known to put on weight here, much to their disgust. <laughs> In fact, this was exactly where Faith and the scheme wanted to be. Um, as the scheme's publicity ran, there's a plan now for living in Indonesia in this, for a new kind of European in Asia. The European who lives as a brother and not a boss. But are they then slumming? Far from it. They're living in middle-class Indonesian hostels and homes, seeing friends, going to wedding parties and festivals, teaching, going to the movies with Indonesian friends, in short, seeing Asian life from the level of the Asian. And it, I think it is important at this point that they're looking at Asia as a middle-class society because something that um, other development volunteering programs lose in the future, and we'll go on to that. Now, the story changed during the late 1950s, by which time Faith had left Indonesia to do his PhD in the United States. By now, Indonesia was in the throes of a political and economic crisis. Politically, an uprising in the outer islands, covertly supported, of course, by the United States, which was getting a bit worried about Sukarno's closeness to the communists, um, caused great instability and ultimately helped usher in a period of what became known as guided democracy. Volunteers in Indonesia couldn't help but be involved. Politics was everywhere and it caught up every element of um, daily life. The National Library, again, holds a letter from Elaine Wills, a volunteer teacher in Medan in northern Sumatra who was there right at the heart of the uprising. She wrote of a situation in which 60% of her students were no longer attending lectures, of classes with no teachers, unreliable electricity, and students having to sit on their desks with umbrellas up if it rains. She closed with an almost audible sigh, oh, there is so much to be done now. Things weren't looking good in Jakarta either. The uprising caused a surge of refugees to Jakarta, adding further to a population that had been booming since the war. In fact, the population of Jakarta tripled during the 1950s. And the city struggled with a huge and crippling housing shortage. Early volunteers, um, so Faith and that group, had often written that they were very lucky. They were being put up in government hostels or middle-class homes. In fact, Faith lived with a senior government minister in a very comfortable home with many servants. After 1958, however, the tone changed. Now accommodation was presenting huge problems. The government could no longer organise adequate accommodation and private families were often unwilling to take on Australians as tenants. In light of this, volunteers had to do whatever they could and they often came up against these ideals, the very rigid ideals of how volunteers should behave. Some, like Joan Minogue and Noel Motum, shared a hotel room during their, posti uh, during their postings. Um, they were there in 1957 and 58, but they received a little bit of criticism for doing this from the Melbourne committee back home. After all, by living together and in a hotel room, they weren't living with and amongst Indonesians. Arriving in 1961, Jeff Miles, who is in the room, managed to, and so he'll tell me if I'm wrong, managed to find private board at a decent price but only on the condition that he spoke English to the landlord's family so that they could pick up more English. He wrote to the Melbourne committee to defend himself. Some people may think, this is a quote, some people may think this clashes with classic Fiji doctrine that we should live with Indonesian-speaking families, but he couldn't see any way around it. To him, the ideals of development volunteering at this time were no longer realistic and so had to be, if not abandoned, then at least bent to make the situation workable. Housing wasn't the worst by far of the problems. The Indonesian economy suffered some terrible shocks in the 50s. Um, the terms of the independence treaty had saddled Indonesia with a huge debt which had been accrued by the Dutch colonisers but had to be paid by the Indonesians. Um, this became, you know, the interest began to bite just as one of Indonesia's major industries, which was rubber, the global rubber market collapsed. 
the end result being Indonesia suffered terrible inflation. The cost of living was doubling every 12 months or so in the early 1960s, and runaway inflation of more than 200% per annum was reached in some of the later years. In response to this, the government did what many governments do and cut funding to the civil service. From 1959, VGS was never sure whether their next candidate would be placed or not. The situation was uncertain and rumours ran riot. Australians were excluded from the employment freeze one month, but the freeze was on again the next. For those volunteers who managed to get accepted, getting by became extremely difficult. Because of inflation, PGB salaries, which started off as being quite comfortable, were now no longer enough to keep food on the table. In early 1962, VGS Honorary Secretary Jim Webb reported that, quote, the earlier volunteers were able usually to obtain a balanced diet fairly readily, but this is more difficult now with commodity shortages and very high prices. Again, he thought that the situation was so dire that some of those principles would have to be relaxed. And he now thought that volunteers should arrive in Indonesia with sort of big bundles of food that they'd be able to rely on in case the situation turned a bit nasty. The reason I'm telling you this story is to sort of test how the development volunteer model designed for Indonesia in the early 1950s was reaching breaking point by, you know, later in the same decade. Some volunteers grew disillusioned. In 1960, the Melbourne University magazine Farago wrote an expose. The reporter said that the name has an aura of adventure, goodwill, sacrificial giving, of friendship with Australia's near neighbour, Indonesia. And I think that it's important that by this time it already had developed this name. But the aura, it was claimed, was no longer related to reality. Now conditions have changed, the article went on, and some of the volunteer graduates I met were disillusioned and underfed. They were preoccupied with their day-to-day -day needs and making the best of a bad situation until it's time to return to Australia. Now, this article evoked a range of responses from the volunteers, including a particularly thoughtful one from Ken Thomas, who by this point had served two terms and almost five years in Indonesia. He warned that volunteers who end up expecting to be showered with gratitude will be disillusioned. And to be honest, I think all of us vaguely felt this way at first. On arrival, I guess I was more idealistic than I am now, though I'd like to think I still have some idealism left, an idealism tinged with realism. Yet he remained hopeful. To anyone wanting to help out, I'd say give it a try. You may go up feeling like a knight in shining armour, out to do a good deed, but you'll come back feeling just like an ordinary human being, realising that the problems of a country like Indonesia are immense, that the daily routine can be far from glamorous but it will surely have been worthwhile. So it's important that despite all of these problems of overcrowding, poverty, and sometimes even unfriendly receptions from locals, young Australians remained hopeful about this development volunteering model. In his 1962 report, Jim Webb found that despite the fact that, quote, conditions are more difficult for them now than at any other time, the morale of all the volunteers I visited was very high. Now, interestingly, it is at this exact point where the scheme was looking like it was hitting very, very choppy waters that its publicity and also its influence began to peak. While the conditions worsened and the number of volunteers plummeted, the rhetoric got louder and spread further. From 1957 until 1962, VGS produced a quarterly newsletter, which um, was usually just you know a type, typed up little newsletter spread among friends. But in 1959, they got UNESCO funding to produce 5,000 copies of this glossy magazine you see on the, um, your left-hand side, Jambatan. It had a print run of 5,000. Although some of the articles spoke of the difficulties of budgeting and learning to get by with less, they always did this with a positive tone, sort of really selling this idea as, some, as one worth picking up. And the full assurance that they were participating in something truly worthwhile. At this point um, in the early 60s, VGS also subsidised the production of a book, Ivan Southall's Indonesia Face to Face. Um, they paid for a lot of Ivan's travelling costs. And this portrayed the volunteers as inspirational, in fact, quite heroic figures. To some extent, the book was the climax of VGS publicity. Um, but by this time, and by the time it was published in 1964, only one volunteer was living in Indonesia. 
The late 50s and early 60s was also the period when VGS had its widest international impact and this is where that small story starts to sort of break its boundaries and become much bigger than its origins. VGS came into existence as a solution to specifically Australian and Indonesian problems as we've seen. However, from the very beginning, the Melbourne Committee hoped to spread its model of development volunteering to other countries and other contexts. Even as early as 1950, they were writing letters to Australian diplomats, including um, famous diplomat Tom Critchley, asking for advice. Should they go to Indonesia? Or would another country be more favourable, despite the fact that it was an Indonesian idea? On Critchley's advice, they began to think quite seriously about Burma, India and Malaya as potential destinations, and Burma in particular came to take up quite a lot of focus and time and energy for the um, organising committee throughout the 50s. And in fact, a number of trips and overtures were made, although nothing ever came um, of those negotiations. Yet VGS continued to feel it was desirable, quote, that the symbolic value of the scheme in terms of racial equality should not just be limited to one country. Moreover, not only did the group look to extend their activities to other, um, to other receiving nations, they also wanted young people from across the developed world to have the same experiences. In the same month that he arrived in Indonesia, so right from the go, from the moment he set foot there, um, Herb Feith wrote to the Australian Association for the United Nations to propose that his experience serve as a forerunner of possible other similar ventures in other parts of Southeast Asia, possibly in cooperation with UN agencies. He thought that, quote, Australian graduates can pioneer the way for students of other nationalities. And the word pioneer, which has its own quite problematic colonial history, does get applied to VGS from then on, in almost everywhere. So to this end, VGS attempted to lobby other developed nations to begin similar programs. New Zealand was the first target, and from early 1951, contact was initiated with the New Zealand University Students Association and the New Zealand Student Christian Movement. The correspondence continued, and in 1955, Jim Webb shared a flight from Indonesia with the New Zealand Minister for External Affairs and the Department Secretary. Now remember, they're flying first class. By the time the plane touched down on Australian soil, Webb had managed to convince the secretary, who became very keen about some of the principles involved, he wrote in a later report. Within months, the New Zealand scheme had, was formally established. Um, it was funded by the New Zealand government, but it was actually administered by the Australian VGS, so this was very much a sister program. A couple of years later, 1950, uh, sorry, around the same time in 1954, young Canadian Louis Perenbaum heard of the Australian scheme and immediately decided to try and set up a similar program in Canada. Perenbaum visited Indonesia in 1955, hoping to set up a similar arrangement there, but within a couple of years he decided that Ghana would be a more appropriate receiving nation. Ghana was in the Commonwealth, which would make the scheme an easier sell politically, and it was also on the cusp of decolonisation. As Perenbaum wrote to the Canadian government, quote, arising from the Australian experience, it is suggested that a similar program be established with Ghana, in whose progress and prosperity Canada is greatly interested. This would result in the establishment of CUSO, or Canadian University Service Overseas, of which Perenbaum became founding director in 1961. And as you can see, this is the website grab. It's still one of the world's major development volunteering programs. In 1957, VGS also began corresponding with Alec Dixon, who went on to establish Britain's volunteer service, sorry, Voluntary Service Overseas, or VSO. Dixon had initiated contact through his brother, who was Director of Education in the British Colony of Sarawak, which later became part of Malaysia. He wrote to VGS, explaining that Alec Dixon was anxious to develop something of the kind in the United Kingdom for voluntary overseas service by young people. But his focus eventually encompassed not only Malaya, but also parts of Africa, especially parts of Africa that were former British colonies. Um, VSO was launched in 1958. It again is now a major organisation that has sent over 40,000 Britons to developing nations. And that's some of the um, statistics that they like to bring up. 
1957, so the same year they were corresponding with Alec Dixon, Herb Feith left to pursue a PhD in, Indone in Indonesian politics at Cornell University. And like I said, he's a doer. He began immediately to correspond with just about anyone in power in the United States who could listen. He wrote dozens of letters and met a range of influential Americans, urging them to send volunteers not only to Indonesia, but also to other parts of Asia and Africa. In a letter to the American Committee on Africa, for example, he encouraged, quote, American-African Amer American parallels to the Australian-Indonesian volunteer graduate scheme, noting that not only was Africa in similar need of trained expertise, but that, quote, an American-African scheme of the type I'm envisaging which would draw its strength in part from a sense of guilt about the national past, which is similar to that felt by young Australians. Now, the Peace Corps, finally established in 1961, doesn't cite VGS very often as an immediate inspiration. Um, as you'll see, the Americans prefer to see this as a US ideal. But it was nonetheless influenced by it. John F. Kennedy commissioned two research reports on overseas volunteer programs while he was firming his plans up for the Peace Corps. These reports drew on the experience of VSO and QSO, as well as several other American proposals that Herb Feith had been quite centrally involved in setting up. That had never taken off the ground, though. Several of Kennedy's advisers also knew Herb Feith from his time at Cornell. Um, some people have acknowledged this. US historian Elizabeth Cobbs, Cobbs Hoffman acknowledges the influence of VGS on the Peace Corps, um, again, sort of drawing on the idea of cultural kinship. She says that Australia and America had a cultural kinship that made for a certain likeness, including the sense of a special mission. Now, while these programs borrowed the basic model of development volunteering from VGS, there were significant differences. Above all, they differed in size and scope. VSO had overtaken the total number sent by VGS within its first two years, and both were put in the shade by um, the Peace Corps who had more than 1,000 volunteers in its very first year, and more than 222,000 Americans have now served in the Peace Corps, which is also a major cultural institution. Notably, the religious aspects of VGS were erased from these international programs, which were very firmly focused on the secular goals of modernisation and international development. The Peace Corps also placed the Cold War at the front and centre of its early activities. While some of the details had changed, the export of the fundamental development volunteering model was seen in an unproblematic way. Developed nations would help underdeveloped ones. By the 1960s, the language being used was first world and third world. All the evidence suggests that VGS didn't spend a great deal of time debating the meaning or location of development. It was assumed that all poor post-colonial countries such as Indonesia, Burma and India were in need of volunteers from rich, putatively developed nations such as Australia, New Zealand and America, despite the fact that that initial sort of impetus from Australia hadn't come from these other nations, they hadn't asked. Even though the concept of development was rarely defined, um, this, the, in the late 50s and early 60s, this was something that the UN was trying to get its head around um, quite dramatically. And this was, a great this was a subject of a good deal of debate amongst economists. So I think what this is pointing at is a broader sort of cultural assumption. The idea of a natural or organic connection between developed Western nations and a gulf between Western and non-Western ones which wasn't unique to the development sphere, but perhaps becomes particularly important in development because this becomes, of course, its raison d'etre. The organic ties between English-speaking nations and racial ties between whites or Europeans in general lay at the heart of politics and culture in the colonial world. We saw that VGS sought to overturn them. However, its continuation into the post-colonial period and into these spheres of international development and foreign aid is, I think, very important. Again, it suggests that VGS and the development volunteer concept were sim simultaneously translating some of these older concepts at the same time that it was looking to overturn them. Now, just as the idea took off overseas, Australia's VGS was quietly wrapping up. The instability of the situation in Indonesia saw VGS folded into a broader program, the Overseas Service Bureau, and later into AVI, which still exists today. 
VGS no longer existed on a standalone basis though, and by 1969, even the incoming Australian ambassador to Indonesia didn't know of its existence. By this time, however, as we've seen, it had already made its mark. Many of the volunteers' future lives focused for the rest of their lives and careers on Indonesia or foreign aid. Many went into um, policy, foreign aid policy in Australia. Some went into the academy as Indonesia experts. And as we've seen, it also was influential on other um, programs around the world. So by way of conclusion, I just want to pull back a little. What, why is this important? Why should we trace these small stories and their broader impact? Foreign aid and international development are largely regarded as economic processes based on quasi-scientific principles. The notion that underdeveloped nations must follow a number of processes towards economic development, as modelled on the West, is so deeply entrenched as to seem sacrosanct. It's both common and political knowledge, and it structures economic and diplomatic systems, as well as having a profound effect on lives of millions of people around the world. But taking a historical approach can help reveal a different perspective. First of all, it helps sort of destroy that facade of coherence. Once we strip away decades of economists and politicians' rhetoric, we can recognise that foreign aid as a process was invented. It wasn't born whole and invented piecemeal. Looking at its invention reveals that theories and practices of economic development were not created whole, but rather were stitched together from trial and error, from debate and compromise, translation and transposal. Most importantly, I think, by investigating foreign aid as a historical rather than necessarily economic process, you allow the people back in. As we've seen, people can have multiple and sometimes contradictory intentions and experiences, and acknowledging them can help us understand the tensions in the systems they've bequeathed us. The people who contributed to this system of development volunteering were of their place and time. Their ideas were shaped by individual personalities and also by society, by religious and political views, but also by broader assumptions about the nature of East and West, old and new nations, developed and underdeveloped worlds. As we've seen tonight, ordinary people, even students, could have a profound impact on the invention and practice of foreign aid and international development. Their invention, development volunteering, was made to suit a very specific context and time, Indonesia and Australia in the early 1950s. However, it soon breached those, breached those borders and was implemented by other actors for different purposes and in different contexts. Looking perhaps at these origins then can help us understand not only how foreign aid practices came into being, but also explains some of the tensions and contradictions in the system as it continues today. Thank you. <laughs>